You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 25th, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Practicing social distancing via podcasting since 2005. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 15 years of preparation to this moment. It's paying off. Yeah, it's actually... We were, talking about the fact that it's it's good that this sideline that we have is entirely online. Yep. Uh, well, except for that stage show thing that we're training it off the ramp. Podcast and everything. A lot of it is online. So Evan, you, you we missed you last week, but you I missed you guys. Well. She is doing well, thank you, and I appreciate the people who have written to me privately and sent well wishes and everything I've expressed them to Jennifer. She very much appreciates it. As well, she is on the mend. Well that's so nice. Yeah. So we are getting to the end of our second week of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, we're managing, we're making adjustments. I think, uh, we're, you know, I think a lot of people are learning ways to keep busy, to restructure their life. You know, I do think that, um, you know, people are settling in for the long haul. You're like the first week, you're like, all right, I could do this. You know, this is just, you're thinking a week, you know, like you're, you're not really wrapping your head around the fact that, wow, this could really go on a long time. Now in the second week, I'm hearing from a lot of people, it's starting to really hit them. Like, Mm -hmm. this could be a while. You know, we got to really make adjustments to our day-to-day structure, you know? Yep. Yeah, I mean, bottom line is, it's just, it's like your life changes. And Kara was saying before the show that she's off her schedule, right? Everybody's off their, most people are off their normal schedule. And you gotta, you gotta get creative and you gotta work with everyone. You know, you gotta, you're cooped up with whoever you're cooped up with. And maybe, yep. God forbid, you're alone. You know, some people are alone. A lot of people that, are alone. That's a problem. Like, yeah. Get on Google Hangouts. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Stay in touch with people. Like that's, they're actually starting to try and, like, um, I think the WHO and, and a lot of like larger organizations are wanting to start to phase out the phrase social distancing and phase in physical distancing because mm-hmm. you need to be social. Ah, right you're right. Yeah, because yeah. 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 yeah, it's, it's, we don't want to encourage people to not have you know, psychological well-being. Like we need to be in oh touch with gosh. the people that we love, just not physically in touch because it is hard. And also I, I struggle with this like – if I don't have something to wake up for on the calendar, I will sleep. I will just sleep and sleep and sleep. And I'll be like on the couch rolling over like, a, blah, I'm going to eat and then roll over and fall asleep. And then blah, watch TV and roll over and fall asleep. Like, Kara. I know wow. it's horrible. It's I've like got alternate like, Kara in, in some alternate universe. <laughs> if only you knew. Um, yeah. For, as somebody who works from home, I have the worst kind of like work from home hygiene. Uh. And yeah, I, I know people who are so good at waking up, taking a shower, putting on shoes. Like changing what? into their clothes and putting That's crazy shoes. talk. That's yeah. crazy talk. And that's how they maintain a sense of kind of sanity. Yeah, I always put my shoes on. I feel naked if my shoes aren't on. <laughs> ah, shoes. <laughs> but under- underwear is completely optional at this point. Um, Seriously, I'm like three days in. Like I should probably change my T-shirt. Oh, it's interesting though. So I have pants all day. Uh-huh. So my day schedule is actually not different. It's just that yeah. I don't have as quite as many patients and – they're online. It's all telehealth. But I have to be dressed professionally. So I have to, I'm dressing the same way I do for work. 
Um, just nice. sitting in front of my computer rather than going in. It does structure my day. Right. So there's a there's a joke there. What's a doctor above the waist, party boy on the seat? I don't know, something like that. <laughs> I thought that was below judges the monitor, under their robes the or something. Below yeah. the camp. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm doing therapy online, but it, or no, I'm doing therapy over the phone. I'm doing teletherapy, but mm-hmm. but it's over the phone, so it really doesn't matter what I look like, which is tough. Mm-hmm. I still go to an office. Because wow. I have, yeah, I'm considered uh, what essential, essential personnel. Yeah, as an accountant, yeah, they they carved out uh, a notch for us, at least in the state of Connecticut, they did, in which we can go in, and I do have clients who still want to see me. They're all, you know, they're one-on-one appointments, and we're doing all the correct things, keeping the six office feet. clean, wiping down, definitely the six-foot rule, and you know, all the limited contact. There's there's not even elbow bumps at this point. You know, we've just yeah. stopped Too stopped close. all all touching, right? How typical is Yale's stash of tests across like other um, hospitals? Because I have been reading the most insane horror stories of people going into the hospital with a fever and a cough, getting tested for strep and influenza. And when they find those negatives saying, unless you've been exposed to somebody who traveled outside of the country, we cannot afford to give you a test. Yeah, And they're like, but my wife is sick in bed with what I think is covid and they're like can't do it i know we don't have enough tests to go around Mm. a friend of mine from medical school is on the front lines in new york the the state that has the most cases and he said it's a it's a zoo that they're basically just trying to separate the covid cases from the non-covid cases and they are they are overwhelmed yeah Uh, so yeah Uh, and there's, so you know, there's scary. a critical shortage of PPE, you know, the, the personal yeah. protection stuff. So don't, you know, definitely don't hoard, don't buy masks if you're not a healthcare provider. You know, we're going to be talking about some specific things, you know, uh, in the beginning of the news items as well. But really don't, anything you feel like you need to do to, to protect yourself that involves uh, you know, hoarding something or getting something, you probably don't need to do it. And you're probably taking away a, a critical resource from healthcare providers. So you really should only be doing it under your doctor's advice. Is a sort of yeah, a good, good rule of thumb. Hmm. You do, don't try to, don't try to short track anything. I feel like you got like the inside scoop on something and you're going to be doing something to give yourself an edge. You're probably going to be doing something counterproductive if you do that. Ugh. You know, I've been in lockdown now, I think almost three weeks here in LA. It was only mandated within the last week or two, but I self quarantined early just because that's what, yeah. you know, health officials were saying we should do. I left once for the grocery store and that was it. I've been getting my groceries delivered. But last Friday, I um, was actually asked to go into the studio. Studios at KCET, which is one of the networks involved in the kind of PBS family of networks here in Southern California. And I filmed um, a bunch of content for their at-home learning initiative. So between KCET, PBS SoCal, and um, the LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, they came up with a bunch of great curriculum for all kids, like starting in kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. And I got to film a bunch of stuff for all of the math and science content. So mm. if you're in um, Southern California, highly recommend it if your kids are home and they need, um, you know, they're not in school yet because school hasn't come back online yet. Um, show them PBS, show them KCET. There's a lot of great programming. You can go to at home learning. Um, I think it's like pbs.org slash at home learning um, to learn more about it. I'm not sure if outside of Southern California it's available. It may be online, though, so I would still give it a try. Um, yeah. Lots of, lots also- of good stuff. It's also a good time for the teaching company, you know, and this isn't oh, a paid yeah, ad sure. this time, but just Absolutely. they have lots of content and they are producing some special content because 
you know, people are at home and hungry for it. Oh, that's good. Quick, quick update on the numbers. So as we're recording this, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases is 468,000. So we're approaching half a million. Number of deaths is 21,185. So unfortunately, the death rate is going up. Uh, yeah. the, the current death rate, if you just count completed cases, closed cases, is mm-hmm. 16%. Wow. If you look at all cases, it's 4.5%. So the, the death rate, I think that's probably because of Italy, because Italy yeah. is getting really hit hard. And Italy has like, um, I was really, I was interested in why Italy was getting hit so hard. And we know that a lot of it is the way Cultural. things are managed. But, okay. um, but we also know that they have a much older population. And that, because it's not so mm. much why are they getting hit so hard, it's why is their death rate so high compared to everybody else's per number of cases. And yeah, it seems to be the case that they, they just have a very aging population. Lack of respirators to, too? Yeah, they don't have enough. They yeah. don't have enough just like everybody else doesn't have enough. But they were severely short in mm. as far as ratios go is my understanding. But yeah. but I also was, was reading across the board that they actually have a pretty decent health infrastructure. Very, it's very like, good. It was, it was yeah, assessed have, like last year and it was like really good. Mm-hmm. And they Especially have enough north. beds. Like we might not even have enough beds, but the fact that they so, – so it's a combination obviously of factors, but it does seem to be the case that like – the actual age of the general population skews significantly older in Italy. And we know yeah. that older people are at highest risk. Right. And so that, that does seem to, to affect like the number of people who, who die per the number of people who get the disease. And also, as we know, this may be an underrepresentation. It may be an overrepresentation because there is, we absolutely don't know the real number of people with, with COVID-19. Okay. So that, that leads me to my next question. Once someone does have it uh the antibodies in the in, in the body are created does that become something you can test later in the bloodstream it remains in there forever and you can definitely have a fingerprint so yes and no it, you, you you develop antibodies um they don't necessarily let, give you forever immunity or last forever so we don't know we'll again we'll know you know later on how, you know, what kind of resistance does getting infected confer how long does it last but can we test for it yeah, yeah, we could test there, for anybody. Okay, yeah. so after the fact. So if I had if, it in January mm-hmm. and, you know, had showed mild symptoms or very limited symptoms, I had it. Those markers are still in my blood and can be theoretically, tested. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah, I don't know that we don't have a test, but theoretically. Uh, but it's not, we don't I even know yet if that confers immunity or not. Mm. It may not. Yeah. Yeah, we're not sure. But, and, and also another factor is that um, you, even if you had immunity, strong immunity uh, for a long time, uh, you know, if you had some major mutations to the virus, then all bets are off, right? And that's what, well, that's, what the, that's why the flu, you know, the flu mutates all the time. Yeah, and, but, but the good news is... not like the flu in that way, though. This yeah, the research is showing this isn't mutating much. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not that's mutating much. So that's, so that's a really good bit of news yeah, when they found out that good. it's not quite... But viruses in general, they mutate like little mothers. So they are, you know, they, that's <laughs> what they do. That's what they do. They mutate a lot. So a couple of follow-up things from last week, really quick. Oh, okay. So... Uh, we talked about the study that showed that the virus lasts on in the air for a few hours and on steel and plastic for a few days. And, you know, in the last week, a lot of, of uh, scientists have been able to, like, really dig into that study. Um, so it doesn't really show as much as it initially might seem that it did. So first of all, the, the lasting in the air is only in a aerosolized form. So not the form, like if somebody coughs or sneezes or breathes, 
that's not enough uh, to, to have it stay in the air. Those droplets will settle almost right away. So don't get confused. But that doesn't mean that like you, you know, that if you walk through a space that somebody you had it was in, that, that the, there's virus floating in the air for three hours. That's not what that means. Second, uh, even though it may last on objects for that long, that doesn't mean it's infective for that long. That, that would require a separate study, other data. We don't know how long, like if somebody wipes their nose, touches a doorknob, and then you come by and touch the doorknob and you get it. We don't know the, the, the rate at which that happens. Uh, and after what time. So that's just, those are unknowns. This study was just looking for the virus, not infectivity. Uh, so we can't make that assumption. Uh, however, having said that, we, you know, we always assume the worst. You know, we, we, that's why we have like the universal precautions that the whole idea is we prepare for the worst. There's, there's been so many studies coming out with COVID-19. It's hard to keep up with it. There's, there's also data that shows that it's actually really hard to fully sanitize a surface. You have to do a really good job of cleaning it. Don't think by just giving it a quick wipe that it's now sterile. Mm. Um, viruses are hardy little buggers are hard to get, re- to get rid of. You need to use the right agent. You need to scrub for long enough. So. It definitely helps to keep your keep your environment clean, physically clean. But it, yeah. it takes a little bit of diligence to do a good enough job that it really helps. You know, you got it. This is not just a, a well, quick. Well, what test. would that mean? What does that mean, Steve? So you want to use something that's you know like Lysol or bleach, something that will actually deactivate the virus. And you want to like you really have to go over every bit of the surface with scrubbing action. You know for. A suspended period of time. Even for countertops, like if you're cleaning yeah. a, a marble countertop, you have to scrub it. Yeah, yeah, you do. You really do. You gotta, you gotta clean it good. I mean, it also depends on what you're using on there. Like if you if you use a really good dose of Lysol or bleach or something that's really going to get rid of it, um, it helps. But you do need to like the the thing. The problem is that have you ever cleaned a surface? And then you were able to see it with, with light or something where you could see the parts that you got and the parts that you didn't sure. get. You, it's never as thorough as you think. You may think you went over every bit of that surface, but in reality, you may have only gotten 80 or 90% of it. That's the problem. That in order to get 100% of the surface, you have to really, really be thorough. Yeah. You know? So, Steve, you know yeah. what's troubling me? I don't like that we don't have a much clearer picture of what's going on. You know, God it's forbid new. you go on Facebook and you read Careful. You, know, you read um, the politically charged comments and the, the variability in information is extraordinary. All of these numbers sound like guesswork to me at this point. Is that correct? No, 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 no. You, what you want to do is listen to the experts. Now, of course, the experts don't have all the information because this is a new virus. It's a fast-moving pandemic where, again, as a lot of, a lot of them said, we're building the plane while we're flying it. We're figuring this out as we go along. So all of this information is tentative and preliminary, and we know that we're always going to be one or two weeks behind the reality by the time we get the information. But the, there's a lot of experts out there who are giving good, reliable information with the error bars, with like what we don't know, and that's who you want to listen to. Don't listen to anything that's been filtered through any political, ideological, whatever, trying to sell you something or just rumor source. You know, listen to you know direct. Expert sources are what you want to listen to. Um, all right. With that, we're actually going to – so we have, we'll have five news items on the show this week. The first two are going to be COVID-19 related, and then the others will be different. So, Bob, you're going to start with uh, a study which is countering a lot of the conspiracy theories about the origins of this virus. 
So yeah, a new study shows that the virus causing COVID-19 is almost certainly natural, uh, which means in this context that it's highly unlikely that it was engineered as a bioweapon, as some conspiracies have contended from the beginning. So this is published. Oh, if uh, it's natural. It's good for me. Right. <laughs> so, so this is published on March 24th, I believe, uh, in the journal Nature Medicine. So some of the people peddling these conspiracy theories include the likes of Alex Jones. No surprise mm-hmm. there at all. Uh, he claims that COVID-19 is a false flag attack, uh, which he, he uses that term all the time, doesn't he? False flag yeah. by the Chinese it's really government. Alex Jones or the character Alex Jones. Right, right. Yes, it's a character created to make money for himself. So this right. is a false flag attack by the Chinese government against its own people, and at the same time, a Chinese communist plot against the West. So they're really kind of multitasking there, trying to you know do all they can at once. And of course, uh, the conspiracy theory has been repeated by Rush Limbaugh. So these guys are just t- just two of the people that are that are really talking about these. Now, of course. You know, there, there are no markers. There's no serial number markers, uh, like in Blade Runner that you could look at with an electron microscope and say, ah, look at this. This was manufactured by somebody. You know, you can look at the genome of virus and you can look for telltale signs that it was artificially engineered. Um, those things, that is possible. This is, this is something that can be detected. So unfortunately, when China, when China released the, the genome, I think it was the end of January, they actually did, you know, a pretty good job. They, they did the entire sequence and they made it, they offered it to everybody on the planet. So which is something, uh, that needed to be done as early as possible. And there's been, people have been looking at it for quite some time. So there was a paper released soon after that, though, that described it and claimed that they found HIV genetic code in it. And that was one of the reasons for some of the some of these more outrageous conspiracy theories and and why they started because like oh look it's got HIV uh, code in there uh, that's that's shouldn't be there so it's got to be artificial now the paper was later retracted after it was discovered that those snippets of code that the researchers found were way too small to indicate an HIV origin they were just, the sample size is way too small in fact any number of viruses have those have those same brief snippets in their genome uh, but 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 by that point you know some of these theories have, are already out there. The damage had already uh, been done, at least some of it anyway. So when these researchers looked at SARS-CoV-2, they found two discrete bits of evidence against the idea of a tailored bioweapon. They focused on the genetic template of the spike proteins and uh, those are those are on the, di- the those distinctive armatures on the outside of the virus you know, that give it its corona latin name uh those little yep. spiky things uh they're, they're they're on there so the spike is kind of like a grappling hook with a knife at the end of it i mean this is this, this is like the business end of, of this virus and that's because of there's two areas at, at, at the end of that spike there's a receptor binding domain uh that essentially holds on to the host cell. It binds to the receptor in cells that are in like your your lung and intestines and just like that's where it holds on to, gets a good grip. And then there's the cleavage site also around there, that, which is essentially this little uh, molecular machine that breaches the outer walls of the cell, allowing the virus in. So those are the, you know, those are the, it's a business end right there. So the problem is, as deadly as a virus is, models show though that it, it should bind less efficiently to human cells than the SARS 2002 virus that was near optimal at binding. Uh, the stu- they've studied that for many, many years and that thing binds in, in an optimal way. It's, it's really good. This, this one, uh, SARS-CoV-2 does not bind as well, or at least that's what the models are, are telling us. So, so if you were engineering a deadly pandemic virus and your models showed it was less efficient at binding to cells, you know, would you say, yeah, let's go with that anyway, you know, or would you use something that you knows, that you know binds e- even better? 
So that's one thing. That was one of the things that they discovered. So regarding that, the research paper said, this is strong evidence that SARS-CoV-2 is not the product of purposeful manipulation. So let's see. So the other bit of evidence that they describe in this paper, uh, and I, re- I recommend that you read it. Um, it's a little bit, it's pretty dense, but um, it's, it's really interesting. They looked at the, what they call the, SARS, the SARS-CoV-2 backbone. Okay, that's the backbone. Now that's the overall molecular structure of the virus. And that differs markedly from other coronaviruses. I mean, it's still a coronavirus, but this backbone is very, very different. So using the, the, a backbone like this from a, from a pathogen not known to cause illness doesn't make any sense. So the researchers say that if someone wanted to manufacture a novel coronavirus in the lab, they say this would be an extremely unexpected feature to use. It just doesn't make sense that you would go to that. Christian Anderson uh, is an associate professor of immunology and microbiology at Scripps Research and a corresponding author on the paper. She said that these two features of the virus, the mutation in the RDB portion of the spike protein and its distinct backbone, rule out laboratory manipulation as a potential origin of SARS-CoV-2. And there's other, th- there's other ways to look at it. You could, you could look for signs of gene editing done by – there's lots of kits. There are special kits available that allow you to, to do some gene edi- editing at that level. But they leave telltale signs, uh, not any, any letters like in Blade Runner, but there's still telltale evidence. None of that has, none of that has been found. And you could also rely on good old Occam's razor to, to dismiss these bioweapon conspiracies as well, I think. Uh, you know, we've studied coronaviruses for years, since the early 2000s. It's been a while. It's been almost a generation. So the ability to mutate and move between animal hosts uh, before giving a deadly infection to humans, that is what they do. This is what these viruses that's their main job. Even if we don't know yet exactly the animal trajectory the specific coronavirus took, it doesn't matter. We can still safely conclu- conclude that this evolved in nature and is not synthetic. Okay, so cord- according to Paul McCray, pulmonologist at the University of Iowa's Carver College of Medicine, whose lab studies co- coronaviruses, it's exactly what we've learned in studies of SARS in 2002 and 2003 and MERS in 2012. So the concept that this is happening again should come as no surprise. For people that work with these viruses, this is completely unsurprising. We don't need to come up with far-fetched theories when the genome sequences and the characteristics of these viruses support what we are seeing. So there's plenty of stuff to focus on here. It's an, This is not a conspiracy. This is not a, an engineered bioweapon. This is coronavirus is doing what they do best. And it's not good. But the, but we need to focus on other things besides this idea that that, that these this is a potential an engineered thing. That said, I think we're going to be seeing engineered uh, viral weapons in the future. We are not quite there yet. And that day is coming. And we should also be preparing for that as well. The time when these can be created and, and with much more specificity than we see now. You know, we can see some pretty scary stuff in the future. So we need to be like we should have prepared for this pandemic. We should be preparing for that time in the future when we can create engineered bioweapons cheaply and uh, efficiently. And that, that day's not quite here yet, but it, that's coming as well. The problem is, even though this is pretty solid evidence that this was an, a naturally evolved, not an engineered virus, the people who are claiming it's a conspiracy will just dismiss that information as part well, of sure. the conspiracy. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're so gone. it's not going to dampen the right. conspiracy theorists. But you know, for the public who hear it and go, oh, is there anything to that? It will mm-hmm. quell, I think, their fears. Say, nope, we've looked at it. It's not engineered. Have we detected engineered viruses or anything else like it? I bet you we wouldn't know about it if we had. Okay, so there's nothing publicly known. Yeah. The public. No, they, I don't think so. 
Nothing, nothing out in the wild that's, that's hurting people. Scary. I would say. Okay. All right. Yeah, if you if you believe that the scientists can detect what they're saying and if they're telling the truth, right? And that's the problem because there's a lack of trust in science at this point. So I think people will just dismiss this article as propaganda. Well, and it's not just that. I mean, if there, if and when there are bioweapons being developed, they're going to be developed with national security protocol. Like, we're not probably going to know about it. And I don't think that that's a conspiracy thought. I think that that's the way that national security works. A virus yeah, that's like, like saying we won't know about some new secret weapon that we're developing. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> that's the whole point, definition. right? Yeah. So that's, like, how many people do you think actually believe this? Three. I don't know. A lot. I mean, I, yeah, it's, I, you know, it's probably, I don't know. I, be good. I don't know if there's any stats out there mm. on that, but it's like, like any conspiracy theory. I'm sure it's similar percentage. There's, gonna, there's, the, there's the all-purpose conspiracy theorists yeah. who believe any conspiracy they're going to believe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Evan, so there's a lot of snake oil out there emerging coming out of the woodwork for COVID-19, but there's mm-hmm. one that's getting a lot of press recently. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, in a very sad way, I think this was almost bound to happen. People are obviously watching a lot of news concerning SARS-CoV-2, and they're watching daily briefings by the president and his task force, or they're watching what the governors are saying on a daily basis, and certainly the news media. However, there are going to be instances, especially when medical treatments are being discussed, that a person is going to interpret that information as direct advice or take it as instructions for self-medication or read into it some tacit approval for people to try and take some matters into their own hands. But among the guidelines and the suggested actions by our governing officials, you're not going to find them giving specific instructions on what kind of medicine to take. And you're not going to find officials saying that individuals should start taking anything as a treatment without the advice of their doctors. This is very important. But as we know here on the SGU, and after years of talking about some outrageous things people believe and the actions they take based on those beliefs, we talked about colloidal silver, drinking bleach, coffee enemas, ear candling, bee venom therapy, black salve, applying it to the skin, women steaming their vaginas. I mean, the list is endless. But Skeptics of all people could probably predict that a result of the inherent fear that comes with SARS-CoV-2, there's going to be people out there who are going to do things that make no sense and someone might actually die or get killed. And it has happened. Sadly, it was inevitable. An Arizona man is dead. His wife was hospitalized. She did survive. But after both of them self-medicated with chloroquine phosphate in an effort to ward off the virus. Now, Here's the basic confusion, and Steve, you can jump in if you need to add to this. So there's chloroquine phosphate, which is an actual medicine that's prescribed by doctors as an anti-malarial, fends off malaria. But it also happens to be in a formulation that's used to treat fish tanks to prevent parasites. It contains the same active ingredient as the drug given to people, but it's in a different form that can actually poison you. If you it's stop, also way stronger too, right? I believe that is correct. Yeah, yeah the dosage, I'm sure, mm-hmm. is a huge part of that. But if you stop and read the packaging on the product, on the actual fish tank product, it reads, not for human consumption. It says it right there. I've seen labels online of various products, and they, they all say it. Well, this couple from Arizona, they had the fish tank version in their pantry. They likely did not read the label. They mixed it with a liquid. I read it was soda. And then they drank the solution. And it was far from a solution to the problem. 20 minutes later, the paramedics were called. 
She started vomiting. Her husband experienced severe respiratory problems. And soon after arriving at the hospital, he died. The husband died from cardiac arrest. And the wife was in critical condition, but she's stable now and is expected to fully recover. Now, she said this. She was interviewed by NBC News. She said, I saw it sitting on the back shelf and thought, hey, isn't that the stuff that they're talking about on TV? And we were afraid of getting sick. So the wife is basically blaming the husband's death on President Trump, who cited preliminary and unconfirmed research that hydroxychloroquine could be used to treat the virus. Or the Wait, they infection. weren't even sick? They were taking it preventively? Preventively. Oh, yep. my God. So, mm-hmm. And because they saw the president talking about it, they were convinced that they should immediately consume chloroquine in some form. So they found the chloroquine phosphate on the shelf. Regardless of the fact that it was a fish tank chemical treatment, they took it. All right, so I think there's a legitimate point to make here that the president or any governor or anyone else in that level of authority, they need to be much more responsible when talking about medicine. They should probably come to a policy where they only read prepared statements crafted by doctors, physicians, medical professionals, medical experts when talking specifically about medical treatments. They should not be talking off the cuff or so casually about it. At the same time, part of their job is to keep the populace informed and calm. They don't want to be doomsayers, and the psychological health of the society is a real thing, and our elected leaders need to lead in those areas. But when it comes to fields of precision and expertise like medicine, they need to leave those finer details to the experts, the doctors. And you know, Evan, I've been, since that happened, um, there have been more, um, there's been more really good journalism on this topic. And I've read a couple of articles about the fact that a lot of physicians now are actually fraudulently writing in scripts mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. chloroquine, uh, mm-hmm. uh for people who, you know, for themselves, for their yes, family their members. Family members. For the, I read that too. And now people who actually legitimately need to take, there's some form for, what is it, rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, so the the, the drugs also have immunosuppressive capability, mm-hmm. and so they're mm-hmm. approved for, I think the chloroquine is for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Lupus. And, so, yeah, and they patients, can't get their scripts. Yeah, they're, they're a Tom back order because, <sighs> the, because it's being used inappropriately for out of fear of COVID-19, not even in people who have it. So here's the thing. And I get a lot of questions about this. We wrote about this in science-based medicine because China sort of added it to their recommendations of possible treatment and there's published evidence supporting it. So what is the evidence? Why is there this belief that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine can be effective against the uh, COVID-2 virus? The evidence is very preliminary and very weak, right? So you have... Mm-hmm. Preclinical evidence, like in uh, vitro, you know, not in living organisms, but just like in a petri dish kind of thing, where they have some antiviral activity. That's great. Uh, that means that they deserve further study. But the, the number of things that have activity in a petri dish that translates to actually a useful clinical, you know, drug is very, very low. Right, the probability that it's going to that it's going to actually be useful. At the, with this level of preliminary evidence is really, is really low. Uh, part of the reason is it takes a high dose. Mm. So we need to know at doses that are necessary to alter the course of an infection, you know, of COVID-19, are those doses safe, right? Would it actually reduce, you know, the duration or severity of the disease? We do not know that yet. 
there has been only one uh, sort of anecdotal sort of open label study. The French one? Yeah, the French one, which is being touted. It's like, okay, well, there's, there is one study, but it's a horrible study. It's a horrible study. Uh, because it, it not only is it open label, it was not, it wasn't a clinical outcome. They were using right. the, just the detection of the virus and Hasn't the method been peer reviewed either, I heard. Yeah. And probably because it would not, it probably wouldn't get published if it were peer reviewed because it, the results, the methods were terrible. I'll just tell you like the, what for me is the worst thing. They did not do an intention to treat analysis. So what they did was they only included people who were able to complete the, the study. But there were six people who dropped out. They all dropped out because they were sick. And they, like, they, they got admitted to the ICU. You know, Nobody from the control group dropped out. And so do you see how that biases the outcome, right? If, yeah. If the people, right? That's like if a, you know, a drug kills, some, kills people and, and you don't count them in the final analysis, uh, yeah, it, there's a name for that, right? Like survivorship bias. Yeah, it's a survivorship bias. Yeah. I mean, it makes the drug look better because only the, mm -hmm. the people who weren't that bad in the first place, you know, completed the study. So it really invalidates the results, in my opinion. Uh, so these, there was, you know, th those results, I think, are, you know, not only not only preliminary, but just horrible methodology. Maybe not even publishable. So that's why this was sort of released pre-print. You know. And the doctors are saying, well, we wanted to get it out there because it's important. It's like, yeah, you could also argue that it's irresponsible. Well, and what's more irresponsible? I mean, it, I feel like because the issue is that these the assumption, right, is that the physicians are saying we should at least get this information out there because other physicians are going to yes. look at it critically right. and make critical decisions. But that's not the case. Once our elected leader got wind of this, he was like, oh, we've got a new treatment. Don't worry, everybody. Yeah, and this is going to be the biggest so game changer dangerous. in the history of yeah. medicine. The usual salesman's shtick, right? Yeah, and meanwhile, yeah. Fauci is having to come in right after and like toe the yeah. line so carefully to say, let's hold on. We've really got to take time. But he can never like outwardly say the president is wrong. Mm -hmm. Because he might lose his job, and it's yeah. so he's, his position is so tenuous right now. He is the guy we're all looking to. Yeah, they yeah. need to do a better job of stopping the stopping the president and governors. Governors have, have yeah, they have no. Too. There's no. They're not going to stop Trump from making ridiculous statements like no, that. No, they they're can't. not going to do it. Well, and that's so, what Fauci said. He said we are scripting these um, speeches to the letter, but then he riffs. Yeah, yeah. That's and the, we can't that's stop the him from or tweets. Right, no yeah. one is scripting his tweets. So here's the other thing. The, these drugs are not benign. They they have serious side effects, and in fact, uh, you know, Trump is specifically touting hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Both of these drugs have the same dangerous side effect of affecting the heart rhythm. They prolong the QT interval. They and then like the so that's a, a dangerous combination of drugs because the the most dangerous side effect is the same. Um, now, I tried to find it, what actually killed the guy who took, you know, the ridiculous, you know, home remedy of yeah. you know, fish, fish tank, tank treatment. Drugs. Yeah, probably that's probably what killed him. If I had to guess, if I had to put my nickel down, given what we know now, he, if, you, if you overdose on chloroquine, that's what's going to kill you, you know, is that you're going to you're going to. And then it sounds like he died of a heart, a heart attack, right? His heart stopped. Uh, yes, yeah. that's right. But, you know, that's whether or not it was that specific effect that did it. I don't know that we'll be able to determine that. But even if it turns out that this that this drug works, you know, the, the hydroxychloroquine or the chloroquine, it should only be given under a doctor's supervision on a hospitalized patient. 
you know, somebody not, who's already sick. It's like compassionate care, or just that you're they're, you're on, you're being monitored. You're doing EKGs. Yeah. You know, with, you know that we would monitor your heart rhythm to see if you're getting the side effect. When you prescribe this to patients, you have to follow their EKGs to monitor the effect <sighs> that they're having on it. You, you know what I mean? So there's this is this is one of those drugs that needs to be carefully monitored by a physician. Well, and uh, also I don't understand, Steve. Like, what is the face validity of this? Like, what is the mechanism of an anti-malarial and then an antibacterial, an antibiotic yeah. to to kill a virus? I don't even understand how that how they, the, so it there, would work. There is face validity because they they do have antiviral activity. Okay, uh, I see. Yeah, so so it's a perfectly reasonable drug mm-hmm. to say, hey, maybe this might be effective. Let's research it. Uh, and the, the, the in vitro data shows that, yeah, there is antiviral activity there, even specifically against coronavirus. But, you know, again, translating that into a specific clinical treatment mm-hmm. takes, takes research, takes care. And that's, and when Fauci was asked about it, he said, if, would you take this drug for yourself if you got COVID-19? He said, he said no, I would be part of a, trial. of a clinical trial. That was the exactly yeah. correct answer. I would, you would do it only if you were, if you, you know, were, were being monitored carefully and it was part of a clinical trial. That's that the guy is a national treasure. Can I just say he, that? He is. No, oh thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. 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 I think him, yeah. he, him and Cuomo, I think are going to come out of this. It's two of the big heroes of this whole thing. Well, Cuomo's, didn't he, didn't he, uh, allow for hydro, hydrochloroquine either testing or, or something? I mean, he also was kind of touting it. Um, oh, really? as, as well, I don't know if he's giving it his tacit sort of approval. Um, he's, he's, I'm sure he was less bombastic about it than, you know, President Trump, who's always that way about everything. I mean, yeah, Trump, Trump went as far, guy. Trump went as far as to imply that the FDA had approved it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He said we have didn't. approved treatments. And then, like, Fauci had to come out right after and say these are not approved. Yeah, yeah and, and approved. also the FDA released a statement right on the heels basically saying the, the, that as well. And also the director of the Poison and Drug Information Center, the medical director, also had to come out on the heels of what President Trump had said that day and and, and give clarification on that. So. At least they were kind of on top of the ball, realizing that they needed to get out there and try to yeah. try to try to cut it off at the pass. But unfortunately, it seems like some damage has been done. I'm just I'm really scared about the psychological propensity to follow people in positions of authority based on ideological leanings or based mm-hmm. on familiarity, comfort, whatever it may be, and not based on credentialing and not based on track record because. You know, we know right now that in our country there are strong talks about the economy over lives, and there are strong talks about going back to work sooner than is highly recommended, critically recommended by epidemiologists and um, public health officials. And I'm really worried that individuals, if and when bans are lifted, are going to um, heed the advice to just go back to work willy-nilly. Well, I would um, hope they would like slowly phase it back and not just, know, you know, man. open the floodgates, you know. And even would... if they do or they don't, I'm afraid that like people take the takeaway of the conversation to heart and then they act on their own volition. You know, mm. that some people are going to say, oh, well, it seems like it's not that bad now because he's saying that the, what we're doing to the economy is worse. So maybe we need to just go back to work now or maybe I can just go to the grocery store more readily or maybe I can you yeah, know, go the, on that hike. And There's oh, real concern about a second yeah. wave because mm-hmm. of the physical isolation fatigue and people are anxious to get back. And if we do that too soon, 
we get hit with the second wave, which could be even worse. Yeah. So we have, we have to be very careful how we phase back into you know normal business as usual. Also, yes. there was a second wave in 1918 after a summer of far yeah. fewer infections, second and, wave that, was the, and was that wave one. was a wallop. By the way, we mentioned uh, Jay sort of mentioned casually like how many people could potentially work from home, uh, but that was just Jay's guesstimate. So we we just to look up some numbers. There are different estimates, you know, something, uh, some estimates, this was as of 2017, so the numbers are probably higher, that 56% of employees have a job where they can work from home. They, they, at least some of their job could be done remotely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you ask employees, 62% say they could do some or, or all of their work remotely, and 80% would like to do at yeah, least sure. some of their work yeah, uh, we, remotely. Yeah, we may see some cultural shift here that, you know, this yeah. will be different afterwards, you know. And of course, that's like so. That's around sixty percent, sort of. But that's of jobs as they are currently formulated. Right. I wonder how high we could get that number if we made some creative differences in, in those jobs, or as oh, you know, for te- sure. technology, sure. you know, rises to meet to meet these demands. I think that right now this is kind of a natural experiment. Let's see how much work can we do from home. You know. But to be like, clear, Steve, you're saying you're saying that these are jobs that are f- capable of being worked from home, yes. not jobs that are essential. And so I think that's the important distinction. It's there are a fair amount of people that rely on working in person at their job site, but they don't have essential jobs. And so those people are screwed right now because mm. they've been asked to not work or they've been let go. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not. Cleaners, yeah, let's say you, let's say you're providers. a barber. You're a barber. Mm-hmm. You cut hair. You they're know, screwed. That, yeah. that can't. That cannot be done remotely. But um, well, robots. Okay, And what I'm seeing is that yeah, the service, but it's, but it's sort of less. That it's le- it's yeah. not essential. Yep. But like mm-hmm. for example, like you would you probably would consider my job as a physician to be a hundred percent in person. But we're now I'm do- suddenly we can we're doing telehealth. You know. Oh, same and, with therapy. Like before, where yeah. it was oh so many concerns about HIPAA and about all these things yeah. like, there's just no way we can figure and all of a sudden overnight they're like yeah we figured it out yeah, yeah. right exactly. <laughs> yeah. Work yeah, that's why I think totally that number is going to go up because <laughs> yeah. of the coronavirus yeah so I, I, right. it, it's interesting to consider what you know what kind of changes uh, will happen because of this pandemic what will be accelerated like I was thinking for automation now imagine and I know there are warehouses in the world especially some in Japan where uh, they are essentially fully automated where there's like one or two people robots everywhere amazon has come a, a long way and there, but but there's also other companies that even do better than amazon in terms of in terms of automating now imagine if we could automate uh so much of that supply chain where the the you know the warehouse is automated trucks trucks will be self-driving automated and, you know i wonder if that will accelerate that process to to full to full automation in those in those industries or things like telepresence you know will telepresence take a take a huge bump and we'll see a lot more of that uh telepresence is, is such a huge topic i mean like a, a cutting hair you know through telepresence i was kind of joking but that's something that's already happening with surgeries i mean you, they've got surgeries that you could do on the other side of the planet using using special robotics and telepresence and putting the surgeon uh, you know there and and his abilities that's something that we are doing that we can do now and that's just going to get more and more uh, sophisticated and how about virtual hangouts you know we did netflix party watching a movie with people um that aren't there and chatting with them while you do it i mean i think these things we're going to see a change in some of these things and an acceleration beyond what it normally would have been 
I would be careful too to lump automation in with those things because even though yes, automation does mean that fewer people are present, it also means fewer jobs. Like we're actually talking about two very different things. One thing is making somebody's job capable of working from home. The other is eliminating positions. No, I mean, we and, automation is uh, existential crisis for jobs. It's yeah, coming. Yeah. It's coming. And, and uh, there's no stopping it. It's going to happen. And I'm just saying that this could just accelerate that. I mean, that is something that we have to grapple with. The effect of automation is complicated so far. So far, it creates more jobs long term than it, than it destroys in the short term. We don't know if there's a limit. That's kind of the debate. Are we going to get up to this? Is, is, you know, into this sort of at the end of your job ending is a, is a hundred year old, you know, bugbear. Mm-hmm. It's like a peak. It's a peak problem. <laughs> that, well, it shows like, oh, peak whatever, like we, uh, that where it always seems to get pushed off. The real concern that, that, I'm worried about is, yes, this is a cool thing where we're starting to push the limits and say, like, look at what we can do. Look at all the things that we thought couldn't be done online or via telephone or whatever that now we're able to do. But also, is it going to create a new normal that's societally? I mean, yes, it's healthier when you're in a pandemic. But is it actually healthier in the long term to be even more isolated? Yeah, I'm reminded of Isaac Asimov's uh, robot series where there was one entire planet of wealthy people where every single person lived in complete and total isolation. Mm. They, and they thought the, the idea of being in the physical presence of another human being was disgusting to them. Yeah. They only had virtual presence. Uh, and then, and of course, all of the, the labor was done by robots. Um, so that, of course, is the end stage of what you're talking about, Kara. Uh, yeah. it, it, well, it is interesting how to think about a dystopian. Yeah, but how, I forget way. that, I forget those, that story specifically, the details. I mean, how good was their telepresence? I mean, you can get, you know, <laughs> yeah. you get some, you get some holodecks and, yeah, and foglets and, and augmented reality. I mean, this is where we're go back to the psychology <laughs> literature and really look at the, um, the properties of touch. Those yeah. Sex robots, of, you know. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's exactly what I, no, that's exactly what I mean. If you could replicate yeah. that. <laughs> the bathrooms on that planet, each person had a bathroom. They called it a personal. Like when you mm-hmm. go into the bathroom, it's like walking into a holodeck. Like you could you could make the room give any feel that you want it to have because <laughs> it was all uh-huh. about, you know, your experience. It was all about like, you, you know, the, the, uh, the feelings and, and what, what, you can, what you can get out of it. It was just such an interesting thing to do. Like the bathroom was the place to go to be alone and to, <laughs> to find seclusion. I know. Isn't that funny? How is that? Yeah, that's How is that different than yeah, now? Yeah. <laughs> For some people, that's exactly reality. Yeah, that's right just now. an extrapolation of current trends. All right. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Okay. We're now moving to the non-COVID-19 segment of the show. Jay, you're going to start off by telling us about some fake Dead Sea Scrolls. So back in 2017, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. had its grand opening. And this I hear they made it in six days. They, <laughs> of course you said that, Evan. So the, the museum's main donors at the time were Hobby Lobby, the Green family, and the National Christian Foundation. Steve Green, from the Green family, who was one of the owners and founders of the museum, this guy donated the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls parchment fragments this was for the opening of the museum. So you may have heard of these 16 alleged fragments from the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, it was, it was you know, in mm-hmm. the news, it was a pretty big deal. The Dead Sea Scrolls are also known as the Qumran Cave Scrolls, are thought to be ancient Jewish religion manuscripts found in the Qumran Caves in the Judean Desert near Ein Feshkna. 
on the northern shore of the Dead Sea in the West Bank, Palestine. Right? I could give you freaking map coordinates if you want to. Uh, no, I got you. <laughs> right? Scholars have dated the scrolls from the last three centuries BCE and the first century CE. Right? What's the problem? Well, once the museum opened and the artifacts in it were made public, many experts stated that the museum had not vetted the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, they, they were showing concerns that they didn't sufficient, sufficiently verify the origin or the legitimacy of the scrolls. And this is a problem because these scrolls had been, you know, had already been transcribed and the books were, had already been sold with all the text that the, the, you know, that they contained, you know, they've been disseminated. So at one point, a professor of biblical studies at the University of Agder in Norway, Arstein Justness, said that the scrolls were counterfeit. The museum finally had the scrolls analyzed at the German Federal Institute for Materials Research and Testing. That sounds very serious. In 2018, the museum announced that five of the 16 scroll fragments were forgeries. The museum removed those scrolls from display, right? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. So in March of 2020, the museum updated their information and stated that all 16 scroll fragments were fake. All Whoops. all of them were fabricated. So the team of investigators used a few few techniques here that I thought was very cool. One of them was multispectral imaging. And what this means is that they photograph the materials under different wavelengths of light, and that will reveal lots of information. They used high magnification microscopes, and they also used a chemical analysis that revealed the leather you know, was treated with techniques that came along after the, the, uh, the real scrolls, right? Because there are real scrolls. So Colette Lull, her last name is L-O-L-L, the founder and director of Art Fraud Insight, said, this is a quote, after an exhaustive review of all the imaging and scientific analysis results, it is evident that none of the textual fragments in the Museum of the Bible's Dead Sea Scroll collection are authentic. Now, she went on to explain that all 16 scrolls seem to come from the same fraudulent source, even though they were purchased from different sellers. So they are del- oh, wow. they all trace oh. back to the same yep because they yeah, they, the they recognize source. the techniques and the ways that they did it so they are deliberate forgeries made to look like authentic existing scrolls the authentic dead sea scrolls are found at the shrine of the book at the israel museum in jerusalem here's what they found they found that the leather parchment was was likely taken from leather from ancient shoes one thing that they noted was that the scrolls had holes in them that matched lacing holes from a Roman excavation site in the UK. Whoa. They also noted that the ink was modern, and they could tell that by the way uh. the ink was pooling. So whenever the ink were, you know, there was a collection of ink and it sat there by itself and it kind of dried as a wet spot, mm-hmm. they were able to tell that that was modern ink just by the way it dried. The forgers also used clay mineral dust that they sprinkled on the shoe leather after the pages were inked. And this was done to cover up their use of old leather and not actual parchment. Now, you know what the difference between parchment and leather is? Nah, not a lot. Bo- is there? Parchment is paper, well, right? No. It's a very high quality. It's, 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 but it's made it's, of pulp, uh, right? Or is it not? Papyrus. Or like, yeah, like peeled off of a plant as opposed to so leather. So from the Wikipedia, animal. parchment yeah. is a writing material made from, from specially prepared untanned skins of animals, primarily sheep, calves, and goats. No yes, <laughs> unbelievable. Oh, I always thought it was like papyrus. Yeah, like right. It has been used as as yeah. a writing medium for over two millennia. Vellum is a finer quality parchment made from the skins of young animals, such as lambs and young calves. Vellum. So, so. yeah, Kara, I'm not going to pretend that. Oh, I knew that all along. I didn't. 
I read that today. I was like, what? Parchment is what? Get out of town. Yeah. So, you know, but it's specifically prepared. It's dried. And that's why, like, if you've ever seen someone with a parchment map, when it gets wet, it bet this, you know, of course, I'm now remembering all this stuff that I've seen throughout my life. You'll see someone with an old map in a movie or whatever, and it'll, it, in the rain, it'll just fold over their hand like a cloth kind of would. It doesn't, you know, disintegrate like paper would. Yeah, it's more like a fabric. Than exactly. A, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the, the forgers were fantastic. They did an amazing job of their forgery. I mean, it, you know. I guess so to get it that far. Yeah. But I mean, when you look at, when you look at the detail that they did and, and like, you know, they found, they had, they somehow got their hands on the old leather. They were smart enough to know they had the information to actually use languages and every. I mean, this these were these were literate, educated, well educated. They had to know so much to get so much right. You know. Well, were they just riffing or were they just copying word for word from existing? I couldn't scrolls? find that, Bob. I looked specifically. Um, I know that the information is out there because the 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 information was printed in books. I mean, I, you could go and read what they wrote. I just don't know if they copied other stuff or if they made up out of whole cloth <laughs> other information. <laughs> but wow. Now, I think that the forged Dead Sea Scroll documents themselves are so cool that they have innate value. Not just not what the people originally paid, but they're cool. Sure. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, like Piltdown Man becomes. Yeah, a, exactly. I would have just let. Le- I would have just left them there and say replicas. <laughs> replicas. Not replicas. Yeah. Not replicas. Not, Can't do that. But they. Well, we, well, we don't know that. Well, they're no, because they, they're not they're, replicas. They're, they're, they're forgers. Forgers. Very yeah. different thing. Forged replicas. Yeah. So <laughs> bottom bottom line Semantics. is many people made I'm talking about marketing made, branding. Ma- Bob, <laughs> many people made money off of the acquisition of those forgeries. You know, they they went on the uh the collector's market. They went Circuit. on the collector's market. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh companies like Hobby Lobby who, you know, heavily invest into ventures like this, you know, they they got duped. You you guys remember the scandal with Hobby Lobby, by the way? Sure. You know, with yeah. the stolen yeah, artifacts that they ended up having to give back yeah, and everything. Yeah, the yeah. Artifacts. yeah so yeah. or or the or the or the keeping people working during the no, pandemic because God told them to. Art and, and oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. So anyway, wow. just to give it all back. Word to the wise: the next time you're out shopping for dead sea scroll fragments, okay, yeah. remember to <laughs> to check the ink pooling, check for old lacing holes. And you might as well hit it with a spectrometer just to make sure that it's legit. <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, KiwiCo. Guys, KiwiCo creates these really cool hands-on projects designed to expose kids to science, to the concepts of science, art and design. How about that, Kara? It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you know that they have a mission to help build kids' confidence creativity and critical thinking. Those are all words that start with the letter C. In case you don't know by now, KiwiCo offers these really great monthly crates that are designated by age group for kids. And they include everything you need to build a science, technology, engineering, arts, and math kind of themed project. And I'm talking everything. No trips to the store, no additional supplies. Everything's included in the box. It also has kid-friendly instructions and... 
a little like magazine that's included that's really colorful so that kids can learn more about the topics that the crate covers. Yeah, here's a really, really cool one we saw recently. The coin eating robot. This is for ages 9 to 16. And you build this this uh, like rectangular robot that if you, when you put a coin in its tray, you know, it lifts it up, opens its mouth and drops the coin into its bank. So it has to it requires circuitry, engineering, you know, and building. It's a, a great little project. And when you're done, you end up with this cool coin eating robot. And it's so cute. Get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So that that's why like often uh, curators or purchasers will hire an expert, a forensic expert, to to examine it to, to figure out if they're forgeries before you know they lay down scratch for it. Uh, Joe Nickel, you guys all of course know Joe Nickel. Uh, he's a uh, he works for CSI and is a um, a great skeptic, a friend of ours who does investigations. So he wrote a book, Detecting Forgery, Forensic Investigation of Documents. This is like one of his areas of expertise. Yep, they should have gone to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is, everything <laughs> Actually, you're saying, like that's, right? the, that's right. what you do. You look at the provenance of the paper, of the ink, you know, of provenance. the content. Of the, of the, just the provenance of the, of the document itself. What do we know about it? Where did it come from? You put all that together, you know. But, but, but forgers often will use old source material, you know, to make it look, to make it look old. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they won't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's look at other staples and buy some paper. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the fake of a fake. So <laughs> we've already talked, uh, talked a lot about snake oil. I want to talk about a very different kind of sort of snake oil cannabinoids now the, these have been uh in the news a lot recently there's a lot of um interest in doing research into the potential therapeutic effects of substances derived from cannabis uh and there's already a lot of uh, public interest you know so many people ask me about it both professionally and family and friends you know uh it's just it's it's the latest thing but what does the evidence actually show? So there was a recent systematic review looking at cannabinoids for acute pain. So this is just looking at one specific indication. I wrote about this in Science-Based Medicine, but I think it's a sort of a good representation of where we are in general with the cannabinoids and why you know we are in a period where we need to be very cautious about any clinical you know, health claims being made. Uh, because the, the research is all extremely preliminary. Um, and as I've discussed many, many times, it's really, it's very hard to draw any kind of firm clinical conclusions based upon either preliminary evidence or anecdotal evidence. So what has been published about cannabinoids for acute pains, not chronic pain, but just, you know, an injury, surgery, et cetera. So the systematic review looked at six trials. That's it. Just six trials, not very many. And this is over, you know, going back to the 1970s. But also they looked at different cannabinoids, right? So this is not all looking at the same molecule. This is looking at five different ones. There's only one specific molecule had two, two studies looking at it. We're basically looking at the versions of either tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, and then the other one is cannabidiol or CBD. That's what people know as CBD, CBD oil, et cetera. Five of the studies were for oral administration. 
and one was for intramuscular injection. But the authors combined all the data, which I thought was weird to me, Frank. I mean, why would you combine data from it's, – it's already kind of weird to combine data because this is not only a systematic review. It was a meta-analysis for mm. different substances. Um, but when you also combine between oral and intramuscular, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's a dubious value. They did, however, separate it out as well. But here's the thing. They, they concluded that if you look at all the data, there is a small but statistically significant effect favoring the use of cannabinoids over placebo. So it makes it seem like, okay, it's preliminary evidence is positive. But when you split it between the oral agents and the intramuscular agent, the oral agents by themselves was negative. There was no difference between the oral cannabinoids and the placebo in terms of uh, effectiveness in treating mm. acute pain. So the only real significant effect was in the IM, the intramuscular trial. And that was a small preliminary study. So there's basically one very weak study showing effect for acute pain and only in the IM. And it was, it was an, it was a synthetic THC, you know, analog mm -hmm. that was studied in that particular trial. That was also the trial that had the highest risk of bias of the six trials that they looked at. Uh, and also we know from other studies that procedures, needles have a higher placebo effect than pills. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that one study is not convincing. Uh, the five studies looking at different, you know, oral agents basically are negative. So that's not, of course, it's all preliminary. So that's not the final word for any of them. But, you know, this, this is the state of the evidence. We have preliminary and not very encouraging evidence for cannabinoids for acute pain. Uh, similar situation, actually, for chronic pain and for neuropathic pain in that the evidence is very preliminary, too soon to draw any conclusions but it's also not a home run. You know what I mean? Like we're not seeing like, oh, wow, this is this looks great. Let's hope it holds up. It's more like, meh. We're seeing mixed results, not so good, you know. The, the thing is when you're, when you're studying pain as your outcome, you do need to see not only a statistically significant effect but a clinically significant effect. And so you can always argue that, okay, well, larger studies with more power – would be able to reach statistical significance with a subtler effect, a smaller effect. But if the effect, if you're looking for an effect size that is below perception, that's not different than no effect. Yeah, what's, what's the, the point? point? Yeah. So unless you're seeing encouraging results from early studies, that's, I wouldn't hold my breath for that treatment. Yeah. Usually it's the other way around. Like you see really encouraging results from the preliminary data data, and then they, they may or may not hold up with more rigorous trials. When the preliminary stuff's negative, what are you looking for? What do you hope to find? That some big effect is going to suddenly emerge when, you know, when, when the preliminary data didn't? And we know that researcher bias, all that is, if anything, preliminary studies are massively biased towards the positive, especially with something that is so subject to placebo effects like pain. Yeah, would you say the pain of like is one of the most kind of subjective of all of the medical outcomes? Yeah, totally. It's very it's completely psychological. Yeah. It's it's mm -hmm. a, it's a it's a subjective perception that is influenced by so many things. Uh probably the best data with uh the cannabinoids so far is with treating nausea and increasing appetite. Yeah. But the pain data is actually not 
not very positive. So again, I can't rule out that there's that there's an effect there, or that we might come up with some formulation, you know, some specific cannabinoid that will work. You know, one thing that to note, one of the reasons why the oral agents were not effective could be because they have low bioavailability, and the authors even address that. They say this. Uh, specifically, oral absorption of cannabinoids is slow and variable with maximal plasma concentrations occurring occurring 60 to 120 minutes post-ingestion, but can be delayed upward of six hours. Cannabinoids are subject to significant first-pass liver metabolism, which further reduces bioavailability. What does that mean? So blood that gets absorbed, I mean, uh, things that get absorbed from the intestines go uh, through the portal system blood system directly to the liver. That's the first pass effect. That's because your liver is supposed to detoxify things that you eat, right? So it gets a, it gets a first crack at anything that gets absorbed through the gut. But that also means when you take drugs, those drugs go through the liver before they go to the rest of your body. And if the liver, you know, is really good at, det- at metabolizing those drugs, they never get to, to their target. You know, they get filtered out basically metabolized away by the liver before they ever get to where where you want them to go. Even if it's not 100%, it could reduce it so much that it just you, you don't get enough of a dose, you know, where you need it. When potheads have known this for a long time, this yeah. is why they smoke. <laughs> um, or if they are going to eat, eat any sort of yeah. uh, uh, marijuana kind of, whether An it's, edible. you know, THC oil yeah. or CBD oil or whatever. Yeah, it's going to be in pretty high doses usually. Right. Right, right, right. And of course, you know, there's issues with, with smoking because it, it has risks. You know, you're, mm-hmm. it has all, all yes. the risks that smoking has. Uh, so in any case, um, I, I think the bottom line is we can't conclude that it doesn't work. You know, that's not what we're saying. Uh, but like anything, if we just take away the, the clear, I think, political, social angle to this, if we just look at this purely as a new potential treatment, you know, I would say about it what I say about everything at this stage. Sure, this is a drug, right? This is a drug like any other drug or actually a class of drugs, the cannabinoids. It's multiple different drugs that derive from cannabis. Uh, they need to be purified. We need to know the, you know, the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. We need to do proper clinical trials for each potential indication and each route of administration at specific doses of specific drugs. And then we'll be able to say if there's a, if there is a viable therapeutic window. We are a long way away from that. We're in the preliminary research phase. Most things, even things that look very, very encouraging at this stage, do not make it all the way through to a useful clinical product, you know, pharmaceutical. Something like 1% is probably a good estimate, and there's research to back that up. But in this case, the preliminary results are not even that encouraging. You know, they're not even that encouraging. So the, the hype is premature. It's not justified, and be skeptical. What do you say to people who live in areas where, yes, it is a drug, but it's not a controlled substance? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like it, it's so, like any herbal, you know, that it's also yeah. not controlled, you know, you can buy it over the counter basically. So this is mm-hmm. this is becoming an over the counter drug that people are using to self medicate with very yeah. preliminary data. And I think that's a that that is a concerning trend. It's similar to Kratom. Remember we talked about Kratom? It's a it's an opioid like it's not an opioid, but it has similar effects. It's addictive, you get withdrawal. It's a drug, but people are self medicating with it because it just 
it, it so far has escaped FDA attention. And so yeah. it just, it hasn't been regulated yet. But, but once you get an, a market and an industry dedicated to it, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And I've spoken to a lot of researchers who are like, eh, you know what? The cat's out of the bag. It's too late to talk about whether or not it should be available to the public. It is available to the public. So now we just have to do the research to give them the information as quickly as possible. But the cat is already kind of out of the bag. So anyway, this is definitely a buyer beware situation. And I, when I get asked about it, that's what I say. It's like, we don't know. I can't make recommendations at this point because we don't have the information. So I just always urge caution. And, you know, I would prefer to stick with things that we do know that we have researched. And if you're desperate, like with the chloroquine, look for a clinical trial, because that's really at this point, that's how it should be taken as part of a clinical trial or at least under physician supervision. Okay, let's move on. Carrie, you're going to finish up by telling us why women live longer than men. Huh. It's a little bit complicated. So I don't know if we'll ever quite get to the, the a clear-cut answer of why, but what we are finding more and more is that it is true. Women do live longer than men. And I think we've known that for a really long time in human beings. This is Interestingly, as I was reading about this, I didn't realize that this, um, this spans cultures and it spans time as, uh, as far back as the 1700s, at least when we were taking very good records, we were able to see that the lifespan of women was significantly longer than the lifespan of men. So when we look at modern information, we find that in human beings, the differences are 7.8%, um, uh, between women and men. So yeah, women live on average 7.8% longer than men. Um, also, this is kind of cool and I didn't realize, the amount of people who live to be at least 110 or older, which as we know is a very, very small population of people, um, nine out of 10 of those people are women. So even in, in the oldest of old, we see kind of a big difference between the two. So um, this team of researchers, a European team, decided they wanted to understand what it is about gender differences, or I should say sex differences, because here specifically we're looking at biological differences between uh, sexes in the wild. So we've had some studies and, and you know, plenty of investigation in captive animals, um, which are much easier to study, but are artificially kind of protected from environmental causes of death, right? So in zoos, animals are less likely to die from accident. They're um, not predated at all, and they actually are protected against infection. So these researchers said, okay, well, we want to see, does this trend hold in mammals um, that are actually wild? So they looked at 134 populations of um, 101 different wild mammal species, and they said, we're going to look at age-specific mortality. We're just going to see how long they live. Just kind of look at the data and compare the data. So this doesn't quite get us to why, but it does get us to what. And then there are some interesting ideas as to why. So the what is that, yes, um, female mammals in the wild live significantly longer than male mammals. And it's actually a larger difference than we see in female humans and male humans. So they are showing... 18.6% longer on average, but there's a whole lot of variation in that data. So there are some species in which males actually live longer, but 
it just happens to be the case that in the group of mammals that they chose to study, it's far fewer species. Way, way more species show a sex difference in survival that trends on the female side. And even though there's a ton of variation, some you know female mammals live significantly longer than male mammals, the average, the medians, and it turned out to be 18.6 longer um, in females than in males. So that's kind of cool. And then they started to really dig into the nitty gritty and they started to look at um, previous studies and previous kind of theoretical ideas as to why do female mammals live longer than males. They found that there were a whole lot of sex-specific features that were characteristic of this rate, but their biggest kind of take-home finding, which is actually a little hard to digest, is that it doesn't seem to be linked to aging. How we define aging is a little bit complicated, but does that make sense to you guys? Basically, they were looking at how quickly the males of a species age based on a multitude of biological factors. And they were comparing that to how quickly the females of a species age. And they found that on average, they age at similar rates, yet females still live longer. Yeah, but aging and risk of death is not the same thing. Exactly. And so that's what they wanted to look at, right? They wanted to decouple those things. So they said, okay, we want to see, is it the fact that in most of these species, the men are just aging faster? And if the men are aging faster, it would make sense that they're dying younger. So when they controlled for all of those kinds of things, they realized that the men aren't actually aging faster. So there's other things involved with men dying younger. And so I've got kind of a a big, nice, long list of some of the reasons that they think that men are dying younger. One of them has to do with the actual way that men are made (laughs) biologically. And that's that in mammals, at least, males have an X and a Y chromosome and females have two X chromosomes. And there may be something going on simply with that teeny tiny. I don't know if you've ever looked at a karyotype, but the Y chromosome is tiny and it doesn't actually code for all that much, which is, I mean, it codes for a lot, but not nearly as much as an X. And that's why like if there's a problem in um, meiosis and a male would end up with two Ys, but no X, he's going to be spontaneously aborted. He's not a fully functional organism. And so you need that X chromosome there. So there's some indication that maybe that X is carrying things that have a survival potential in them and that, you know, the Y is actually inducing some impaired survival. They're also finding some interesting things about sexual dimorphism. So like kind of the larger the dimorphism between the male and the female, sometimes you'll see really interesting differences between survival rates. And then they're also kind of linking a lot of this to actual lifestyle. So this idea, and a lot of it has to do with reproduction, and that seems to be contributing not so much to fitness, but to resource allocation. And so whereas males of a species are often utilizing resources to mate, female uh, members of a species are not wasting as many resources, even though we do know that pregnancy is pretty resource intensive, right? Pregnancy and childbirth are resource intensive. They, The authors point to a lot of, um, especially in very sexually dimorphic, meaning that the males and the females of the species look really different, like they might be a, a totally different size or have different plumage or something like that, that there's a lot of resources going into 
trying to impress a mate on the male side versus the female side, and that that seems to be utilizing a lot of um, resources. Also, you know, we do see that in certain organisms, the, the males are the ones who are hunting, the males are the ones who are out roaming a lot. And so they did talk a little bit about the fact that they that may contribute to um, par- like developing parasites, um, and, and obviously accidental death, that there's actually more risk-taking behavior. We know that in, in human beings, right? We know that that's why, like, the insurance rates on your on your little boys are higher <laughs> than on your little girls um, because there's more risk-taking behavior there. But so basically, there's a, it's a really complicated um, question of why are we seeing that males are living longer. But to summarize, they're saying it's not because they're aging faster, but it may be that there are costs associated with sexual selection, um, allocation of resources towards growth and maintenance of secondary sexual traits, like literally having a larger mane or growing bigger testicles or, you know, having this plumage is um, utilizing resources, especially during early adulthood. They talk quite a lot about um, testosterone and how testosterone uh, in large quantities, maybe contributing or does contribute to like ornaments and armaments and things that are sexually dimorphic, but also maybe contributing to some health consequences down the road. Also, one of the interesting things they talked about is simply trophy hunting, that in certain mammal species, you're going to see that the males are getting killed more often. You especially see this in ungulates, right? In hoofed creatures, because they want the horns. That's the trophy. Or in lions, they want the the mane. That's the trophy. And so, and elephants too, you want the big tuskers. A hard thing to study for sure. Very Yeah, hard, absolutely. Cool. Very multifactorial. Yep. Yeah. All right, Jay, yeah. it's who's that noisy time. That's right. All right, last week I played this noisy. So what do you guys hear? A record. I hear applause. People, ch- people cheering. Okay. A train. A toy, a toy train. train. People uh, cheering and like celebrating something. On a train. <laughs> so on a, record. a listener named Visto Tutti wrote in and said, I think this week's noisy is Giuliano Pinto, the first real life bionic man kicking a soccer ball at the opening of the World Cup in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I know it's in Brazil because I can hear a child say in Portuguese, what is that just, what is it that just happened? And then his father says, or her father says, he kicked the ball. Surely, oh, well, well yeah, if you speak the language. <laughs> surely only this historic <laughs> event in 2014 could be the situation with such cheering and fanfare for a simple ball kick. All right, so that's incorrect. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. But it was, a, it was a thoroughly researched and well executed guess. Another listener named Justice Smith wrote in and said, Hey, Jay, this week's noisy sounds like someone has isolated a couple of voices from a large crowd at a sport at a sports event. There are certain devices capable of doing this that incorporate hundreds of microphones into a single unit and then use software to pinpoint sound from a particular spot. Not sure if that's what's going on here, but it's pretty cool technology. That is not correct, but man, that is cool technology. I'm going to take a look at that. I want to. I want to learn more about that. I hope. It, I hope something like that works. That would be really useful. Thanks for the guess, but not correct this week. So I'm about to tell you who the winner is. We had an amazingly close second, uh, second person in second place. Now I was very specific in who I picked as the winner because I had to get 
the location exactly correct. So let me mm-hmm. let me give it to you. The winner for last week is Jose Daniel Gomez de Segura. And Jose says, hey, Jay, I am finally 100% sure what this week's noisy is. It's the sound of people clapping and cheering from the balconies in their houses in Spain. It could be Madrid or another city in the center or north of the country based on the accent of the girl who asked why they are doing that. And most important, it is done every day at 8 p.m. currently to support the public health services and their workers, not only in Madrid, but in every city of the country while we have to remain at home. Amazing. Oh, beautiful. So anyway, so that, you know, that's happening a lot in a lot of places in a lot of cities in Europe. I haven't seen anything about it happening anywhere else in the world. Um, so if you've heard about it, you know, pop me an email at, at WTN at the Skeptics Guide. So I can, you know, I'd love to know because I, I like reading about happy things that happen. This is really a great thing that's going on. So the close second was Jody Lesko, who actually guessed first, and she got it correct, that it's it's people clapping and applauding the workers, but she she guessed Milan, so she didn't she didn't mm-hmm. nail it as as much as Jose did. But anyway, you know it's just a wonderful thing that people are doing. And again, you know we should always try to find something to celebrate and be happy about, even during a pandemic. There's heroes popping up all around, and uh, I love this. I, I love the I love seeing the videos. A lot of people are shooting video, and you can just see people. Some people are setting off fireworks. You know, it's just some you know celebration of uh of people working hard and putting themselves at risk to save the world mm-hmm. right steve yeah totally so i have a new noisy steve I, I i think i surprised you with a new noisy this week how you didn't think i was going to find one i'm surprised i'm surprised every Thanks, week <laughs> this is probably one of i'm going to tell you right out of the gate this is a very hard noisy to guess there and i may not get any guesses on it i picked it though because it's so interesting and it, and it definitely delivers an emotion here that I think people will appreciate. And then you'll, you'll laugh when you find out what, what's actually creating the noise. But tell me what this is. Hmm. Could be lots of things, huh? Yeah, sure. I did not like it. Yeah, it had a bit of a tinny chalk, you know, fingers on the chalk, uh, fingers on the chalkboard kind of feel to it. You can email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org with guesses. Um, You could also send me in some cool noises that you heard. I do appreciate everybody's emails and I love, I love all of the people that send me regular emails and, you know, I get to get to know them a little bit. We, we I joke around with people a little bit as they send me in the emails. Now, Steve. Yeah. Are you aware of many things, yeah. That we're a podcast, <laughs> that this is a podcast and mm-hmm. that there is something that every single person that's listening to this podcast can do that would take them moments of their time, especially and you have no excuse because I know that you're home in your underwear right now. Okay, <laughs> you know, when you're at work, Except I try Bob. to leave you alone. When you're busy working, I don't want to ask you to do things for us. I'm asking you to do something that will cost you nothing but a moment of your time, and that is go to go to Apple Podcasts or 
more than one, one more than one aggregator, and just give us a vote, give us a, a, a you know a, a star rating, give us some feedback, let other people know what you think about the podcast. Tell your friends at work as well um, by emailing or texting them, but please don't get together with them until everything is good. And um, you know you can call up or send emails to your friends and family, anybody you think that would enjoy the podcast because it could help people, not just become smarter, but you know, there's been circumstances because of people that listen to this show. People got married because of this show. Kids got named Jay because Aww. of this show. <laughs> people change their career. We get that a lot. Yeah. They went they went into the sciences. But seriously, please do leave a review for us because it'll help brand new people find us. You know, we're very interested in helping the world become a more critical place. And that one of the ways for people to do that is to find a resource of information that they can trust. And, you know, we, we try our hardest to make sure that the information that we put up on this show is accurate and is rational and is sane. And we also want to have some fun while we're on here too. So we thank you for listening. So please thank us back by, by leaving a review somewhere. I also want to mention uh, quickly that, uh, Aaron Sergev and myself and a bunch of other, uh, Skeptics. I also want to mention very quickly that uh, myself and a bunch of other skeptics and medical experts, etc., including Iran Sergev, are forming a skeptic skeptical legal defense fund. Something that's absolutely necessary. Uh, the the quacks and charlatans are increasingly using legal thuggery in order to silence skeptical criticism, and we need a way uh, to keep that from happening. Right to at least. Uh, allow people to to mount an initial defense so they don't have to immediately shut down you know their skeptical writing because somebody's threatening to sue them uh, so take a look at skepticslegaldefense.org.org uh, we have an introduction page there we're just getting started and that page will give a full description of what we are and what we need right now we mostly need volunteers at this point uh, so take a look at that all right, guys, let's move on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. So I got three regular news items this week. that They're not pandemic or toilet paper related. But maybe I, that would be a good theme for a future science fiction toilet paper. Sure. <laughs> Keep that on the back burner. All right. Here we go. Three regular news items. One, a new study finds that learning through VR, virtual reality, was no different in outcome from traditional computer or hands-on learning methods. Item number two, the results of a new study suggest that snake venom evolved largely for hunting prey and not self-defense. And item number three, a new study finds that renewable energy plants can be placed safely in protected regions with little environmental impact. Jay, go first. So this first one here, Steve, this new study defines that learning through VR was no different in outcome from traditional computer or hands-on learning methods. So I'm going to assume that when you say outcome, you mean in... Some test of knowledge gained. Okay. I mean, I could see that. I could see... VR might it might have more of a bang to it. It might be much more entertaining and you might pay attention a little bit more early on, but then it could get just as boring and mundane as any anything else. It's probably much more involved with how intently 
the student is to the material and how much, how hard they're trying than anything else. So I think that one is science. The second one here, researchers of a new study suggests that snake venom evolved largely for hunting prey and not self-defense. I, I mean, I'm not that surprised to hear this. You know, why wouldn't snake venom be used for hunting? I, 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 I never assumed it was only for self-defense. So let me read this last one and see, compare the two. And then finally, there's a study that says renewable energy plants can be placed safely in protected regions with little environmental impact. Renewable energy plants. Okay, so what are we talking about here? A renewable energy plant can be solar. It could be wind. It could be um, hydroelectric. That was the next one I was trying to remember. Hydroelectric. Geothermal. And geothermal. Out of all of them, the ones that I think have like the biggest footprint and and would do the most land cover would be solar panels. I mean, I guess that one's the fiction. I, I would say it's not all. Okay, Evan? Learning through VR, no different in outcome from traditional computer or hands-on learning methods. So the actual reasons why it uh, would have a variance uh, will be interesting to hear. So I'm kind of leaning that towards that one being the fiction, I think. But the snake venom one, I almost called it snake oil. You know, I'm so trained in uh, my skepticism. Everything... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> snake venom evolved largely for hunting prey and not self-defense. Well, okay, so when all you can do is crawl around in your belly, you got no arms, you got no legs, you have all sorts of <laughs> evolutionary limitations in your life, uh, and you need to, you know, make it up in certain ways. I imagine the venom's a big part of that so that it becomes part of uh, hunting as either as well as or more so than self-defense. I think I can see that. So I think that one's going to be science. The renewable energy plants one, I guess this would be the other one that could be the fiction of the three to me. But I don't really see a problem with the study finds that it can be placed safely in protected regions. I mean, whether that plays out in actually being able to do it based on geographic considerations and things, maybe... There aren't as many places as we would like to, but it could be if given, you know, if given uh, certain circumstances, it could be. So that means that's the word can in there. So I'm thinking that that one is going to be science. So I guess I'll stick with uh, VR. I think VR is going to be the fiction. Okay, Kara. Yeah, so I'm stuck between VR and um, the energy plants. I I buy the snake venom thing uh, solely because a a major function of snake venom is paralysis. And I think that that's, I don't know, less helpful for self-defense because it kind of takes a little while. And it seems like if it were just to strike a predator, they would want something. I mean, snake venom is quick acting, but not that quick acting. So it seems like the doses that are involved, you would want to like blind a predator, incapacitate a predator immediately, whereas it definitely makes sense to bite the thing you're going to eat. And then you have to swallow it whole if you're a snake. So, because you're not going to chew it, that snakes don't work that way. So you need it to not be like punching your insides and like trying to chew its way out of you. Um, so if you can p- paralyze something, put it to sleep, it's going to be easier to eat. So I think that one's science. The VR one's confusing to me because it says it's no different than or from traditional computer or hands-on learning methods. I think that this one would get me more if it was just, is is it different from hands-on learning? But if that implies that computer and hands-on learning methods are not that different. And if that's true, then I don't see why VR would be that different. And then the renewable energy plants can be placed safely in protected regions. So we're talking like 
areas that are important for conservation, I'm assuming, areas that have like high biodiversity, areas that are critical um, in terms of their, you know, water supply or their their habitat loss. And I think that that's probably not true. Like a plant, just putting a plant in the middle of like a forest or a, a plain that's protected because there are a lot of animals and, and plant species there that have a strong interaction. I think any human intervention is not safe. So it's all just about mitigating that. So I, I think this one has to stick out to me as as the fiction. I think it's going to have an environmental impact no matter what. Okay, yeah, Bob. Okay, let's see. VR. Uh, yeah, I'm buying that. Second one. Let's see. Do, 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 the Snake Venom one. Yeah, this one, I'm kind of on the fence on this one because I would think that Venom would not be great for hunting because uh, unless – I'm just not sure of the effect that Venom has on, on big-bodied animals and, and small ones. I mean, what good does it do if you you get bit and then you run away and then the snake is going to, you know, be wouldn't won't know where it is, would have to find it to eat it, and uh, so yeah, so I'm gonna have to go with the uh, the uh, the renewable energy plant. Little environmental impact, man, that's that's saying a lot. I don't think uh, th- that new study. I mean, what what the, what the study do? They 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 investigated all different types of renewable energy plants and minimized their impact to to those levels. For various different protected types of regions, I don't think so. I'll say that's fiction. Okay, so uh, Evan, you're by yourself in thinking. Been there that, before. Yeah, you <laughs> have. You actually have a good yeah, record. Yeah, usually works in your favor. <laughs> Sometimes actually. it works out. Sometimes. Yeah. Not this time. All right. So. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. We'll start with the one you all agree with. A the results of a new study suggest that snake venom evolved largely for hunting prey and not self defense. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is. Science. Yeah, awesome. All right. What do you think the main factor was in making that determination? So what would be different about venom used in self-defense versus venom used for hunting? Well, if you're going to if you're going to use it for hunting, you have to be able to di- the snake would have to be able to eat its own venom and not get affected by it. Oh, yeah, that's true. And also maybe how it's delivered? I don't know. Like for hunting, once you bite in, it can come out of your fangs. But for self-defense, you you should be able to like spray it or like you know some, do have a different. Some mechanism. snakes can spray. Some, some snakes. snakes spray. So, so snakes that cones. use their venom defensively do spray it in your face, like because oh, okay. like spitting cobra that does that. For example, that's why I said mostly because there are exceptions. But most venomous snakes do not use it for self. Well, I shouldn't say they don't use it for self defense. They said they think it didn't evolve primarily. It's not tweaked. Mm. It's not evolutionarily optimized for self defense. So. That's an interesting one thought that you brought up, Jay. But the one that they thought thought of was the how long does it take before the venom causes pain? If it's useful in self defense, right. it should cause pain immediately, right away, immediately. It should be yeah, and that's what I said. I feel like it's there's a delay yeah. You hit upon that, Kara. You did. Uh, if there's a delay, it's too late. It's not that useful as a, as a self defense mechanism. They'll they'll still bite defensively, like most people who die mm. of snake bites. The snakes weren't hunting the person. You, they startled the snake, and the snake just bit as a reflex defensively. Uh, but it's but their venom is more tweaked for, uh, as you say, for hunting um, to incapacitate their prey. But the the pain. So they what they the study was looking at. They surveyed hundreds of people who've been bitten by by snakes, and uh, collated a database of what the delay was between the snake bite and the onset of pain. And it's a long time. 
you know, it could be many, many minutes. And so, you know, way too late for it to be really effective as a deterrent, you know, as a, uh, as a defense mechanism. So very, very few bites caused immediate pain. They don't really give an average time in the, in the write-up here, but, they, but most of them were significantly delayed. So that, that's, that's their line of reasoning. That's why I said it suggests, you know, obviously didn't prove it, but you would think if it were used for defense that they, it would be optimized for immediate pain. Like bee stings, right? Bee stings hurt immediately, yeah. immediately. Ugh. That's kind of their point. Those are absolutely defensive stings. Okay, let's go on to, to uh, I guess we'll go back to number one. A new study finds that learning through VR was no different in outcome from traditional computer or hands-on learning methods. Evan, you think this one is a fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Sorry, science. Evan. So, science. And other studies have shown the similar thing. This seems to be the emerging um, sort of a consensus of studies that when, that you're giving material, the same material in a virtual reality setting doesn't really improve the absorption, the memory, the learning of the material. The method really doesn't matter that much, Kara. It's, it's all about, you know, the content mm. itself and just the effort of the student, et cetera. There are other factors involved. There really isn't any sort of magical learning method, you know, in terms of some people say, well, I'm a visual learner, I'm an auditor, and that's all nonsense. These studies yeah. show that it doesn't really matter what medium the information is presented. However, there were some wrinkles to this data that are interesting, and this is really the reason why I included it because I wanted to talk about these wrinkles. There was an advantage in a subset of subjects. What, do you, what subset do you think that they were? People mm. who really enjoyed it? Um, yes, People who... What? Oh, interesting. People who play VR games and enjoy virtual reality, they prefer VR more and they, uh, and they did do a little better if you, if you separate oh, them. Oh, that makes out. sense. Yeah. Hmm. But that group is also predominantly male. And so mm -hmm. that complicates the interpretation of the data because it could be they're male. We don't know what comes first. Do they like VR because they're male? Is it just culturally yeah. more boys are, are being introduced to VR and, and it's, the v, it's the experience with the VR that's the important thing and they just incidentally are male or whatever. What's the interaction there? We don't know from this one study. But the subset that were male and VR users preferred to learn through VR uh, and did a little bit better. Don't you see something similar with like um, airplane pilots and yeah. like – race car drivers and things that they there's like a massive crossover effect there if they already were playing video games that they would like picked things yeah, up yeah. faster yeah totally yeah yeah and there was a study looking at surgeons who who operate with endoscopy if they are video gamers mm -hmm. they do better you know so yeah, there's definitely but uh, and actually in this study overall there was a preference for vr even though there wasn't an advantage overall so people like learning with VR. And in fact, the researchers were happy that the VR was as good as the traditional methods. So, so there's a, there's a non-inferiority there. It wasn't worse than hands-on learning. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that may make it possible to do kinds of, of learning in virtual that a school may not have the opportunity to do hands-on, or it might be more practical or cheaper or just ethical. Like, you could dissect a virtual animal instead of a real animal, for example. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think there's a bright future for VR learning. 
but it's not a it's not a silver bullet, right? It's not like we're gonna it's gonna be suddenly much much better because because it is a virtual reality. It may just be that some people might prefer it, and it may be better for certain applications, etc. All of this means that a new study finds that renewable energy plants can be placed safely in protected regions with little environmental impact is the fiction. Uh, this one was out there a little bit, so I was worried that you guys probably have seen this. I don't care if you saw this one already. Mm-mm, mm-mm. But um, yeah, the, the study showed the opposite. And that that even uh, you know, renewable power plants, when they're placed in environmentally sensitive protected areas where there is high biodiversity, uh, that they can have a significant negative impact. Just because they're green doesn't mean that, as you say, Kara, you know, you have to build roads and power lines and the infrastructure and you have to, and, and as Jay said, like the solar panels take up space. And we, we've talked about the fact yeah. that the, the wind turbines can be a hazard to, to bats and, and to some species of birds if they're not in the right place. And hydroelectric can be massively disruptive to the environment that you put it in. So, uh, these are green is a relative term. They're green with respect to their zero carbon footprint, but we still have to think very carefully about where we place them physically. And what the researchers were calling on is like, don't just plop them down anywhere because they're green. You can't put them in pl- in places where they're going to have a negative impact on the biodiversity. Um, so we have to we have to be you know just essentially put them elsewhere. And what they found was that there's already thousands of renewable energy plants in bad places, basically in protected areas and that are having a negative impact. Mm-hmm. And But there are many more that are planned where it's not too late to relocate them to minimize their environmental impact. So that really does need to be taken into consideration. That's the point of this, of this article. We don't get, you don't, your eyes shouldn't glaze over because it's solar that we don't think about the potential negative environmental impacts there as well. All right, so good job, guys. Mm, yes. Yay. Evan, as consolation, you get to read the quote this week. <laughs> oh, thanks, Steve. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Hey, this quote, this was written in 1976. The way infectious diseases have begun to come back shows that we remain caught in the web of life, permanently and irretrievably. No matter how clever we are at altering what we do not like or how successful we become at displacing other species. Written by William McNeil, famous historian, from his book Plagues and Peoples, mm-hmm. 1976. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good little humble reminder about kind of what we're all facing right now, the power of uh, exactly what we're up against. Yeah, we're, not, we're, we're always going to live with infectious diseases. This is the, yep. it's a fact of life we have to deal with. Okay, well, thank you all for joining me this week. You got it, Steve. Sure, Matt. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Everyone stay safe out there and try to stay sane and happy. Get your exercise. We are going to be Watch doing – we're, we're, we've been uh, doing a virtual – we did like a, we recorded a virtual episode of AQ6 where Bob, Jay, and I were all in our man caves and we did it online. And we're going <laughs> to, we're going to be doing the same thing. We'll be, we'll be having SGU, some streaming, some recorded things that we'll be doing over the next few weeks, give you some extra content to keep you uh, occupied while you're sequestered at home. Uh, and we have the, we have the infrastructure now where we could easily just sit in front of our computer and all have some virtual events on, uh, entirely online. So keep an eye out for that. Watch our Facebook page. Watch our Twitter feed. And we'll, we'll announce them on the show 
when we sch- if we schedule them enough in, in in advance. We have one scheduled for Friday, but that's before the show comes out. Uh, but we'll we'll try to schedule them enough in advance that we could talk about them on the show. All right, guys, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 